trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table again and Welcome to Grassroot Ohio, conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Morgan Harper. Morgan is a Columbus native, lawyer, and founder of the grassroots organization Columbus Stand Up. She also serves as a senior advisor to the American Economic Liberties Project, an anti-monopoly advocacy organization. Previously, she was a candidate to represent Ohio's third congressional district. Morgan was also a vice president at Local Initiative Support Corporation, the nation's largest community development financial institution, and worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as a senior advisor to the first director. Last week on Thursday, February 25, you testified before Congress, the House Judiciary's Antitrust Subcommittee on the unchecked power of big tech. Was this part of your senior advisory role to the American Economic Liberties Project? Yeah, it was. So the American Economic Liberties Project um, is an advocacy organization that focuses on issues around corporate power, antitrust, competition policy. And one of the key areas of focus for the organization, which I've only been a part of, you know, in the past year, but um, well, actually they just were founded in February technically, but some of the people who have been involved in it have been in this space for quite a while. But one of the key areas of focus, especially over the last couple of years, has been the big tech companies. So specifically Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, and um, and the antitrust subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee has been very focused on those companies and recently released a report. So this hearing was a follow-up to that report that they released last year. Are they working on legislation or is this just a study? So that's the idea. The investigation was 16 months. It was a very in-depth investigation, committee staff dedicated to it. And, you know, this is new in a way because it's been about 50 years since Congress has had such an in-depth study as the antitrust subcommittee looking into monopoly power. But this is this has been part of our tradition. You know, we've had previous examples, and this is something I talked about in my testimony, where we had industries that had just grown so large that they were now controlling commerce in a lot of ways or key networks for conducting commerce, like communications networks. And we decided as a country and Congress as that institution that this isn't in the public's interest anymore to have a company that has this much power. So we use the antitrust tools to address that. So part of the idea here is you have to create the legislative record to justify implementing and passing legislation to especially to target a specific industry. And so now the subcommittee's done the report and these hearings are hearings are beginning to create that legislative record that then will likely result in actual bills being introduced and hopefully passed. What was the impetus for the study? I mean, was there something blatantly going wrong and they had to do something or is it just something kind of simmering? Well, I think for a lot of us over the last couple of years, we've started to reflect on the role of some of the big tech companies and the platforms that they operate and whether or not it's all positive. You know, I think especially uh, in the early days of the internet, it's just been great, great, great. You know, and I certainly put myself in the category of someone who's grown up seeing the internet flourish um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, Facebook came out when I was in college and it all just seemed like a win. You know, you get to talk to friends, any friend you make all over the world, you can stay in touch with. But especially I would say after 2016, Cambridge Analytica, 
Analytica, starting to see just how much data these companies were acquiring through our usage that even if we're not paying with our money, we are paying with <laughs> another form of currency and, and that and it's a very 21st century form of currency data and the impacts of that and how that data might be used in ways that we aren't even aware of, can't even imagine. Um, I think that's been a wake up call for folks to be more reflective of the power that these technology companies have and to decide that, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily like that and also how they're harming competition. So I think part of the impetus specifically too for the subcommittee to launch this investigation was hearing from small business owners that are telling their congressional representatives, we can't compete. You know, this isn't, this is not an even, even playing field. They're copying my products and this isn't what America is supposed to be about, a land that really in theory uh, embraces entrepreneurship. So, you know, hearing from business owners directly, hearing from individuals whose privacy has felt violated on these platforms, I think was part of the idea in launching this investigation, devoting the resources to the report, and ultimately what I think will lead to some form of legislation. Because as an activist, I'm on Facebook and Zoom all the time. And, you know, if you have looked or clicked on one link, it'll pop up. The advertisements for that will come, pop up all the time. So right. they are tracking us in so many ways. And the election also was affected. It has mm -hmm. been tremendously affected by social um, networks and media. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of the tension, right? Because, you know, especially as activists, as organizers, as, you know, running as an outside candidate, these platforms are essential, right? Yeah. Um, they're essential to spreading your message and trying to challenge some traditional uh, institutional arbiters of information. And that has been a positive, but, you know, at what cost, I think is is what we're saying. And, um, and you know, the, their business model, specifically looking at Facebook, Google here and, and Amazon, but, you know, they're obviously obviously operating a very different type of platform, are linked to collecting data to then wield in ways that they decide are beneficial to them and not really taking into account as much like the individual or organizational impacts beyond that. And so, you know, by implementing a more pro-competitive uh, regulatory environment, it isn't doing away with the ability of organizers, activists to engage in platforms. It actually will broaden the set of platforms that are available and hopefully increase your ability to share information while also protecting our privacy, our data, and not being manipulated into engaging um, with certain content. So Morgan, the American Economic Liberties Project, how did you get involved with it? And why did they decide to specifically have you testify for this? Yeah, well, the, the group, you know, like I said, is an advocacy organization focused on competition policy and relatively new. I think what, you know, there, there are other groups that have focused on these issues before, but I think what makes uh, economic liberties unique is that they're really, or we really are focused on trying to make these issues relevant for non-policy experts, because that's how you really create the political will to do something about these issues and focused on a lot of communications and then also having, you know, really strong research that's being put out. I don't, I, I'm not directly involved in the research function of the organization, but, you know, if you check out the website, there's a lot of reports that are really plain language reports to understand how issues of monopoly power are impacting our everyday lives. And so, you know, I think that was part of the reason in bringing me on was helping to you know, increase the number of organizations that we're connected to, and also some of the political messaging that we're putting out that will make these issues resonate for likely voters who then will choose their representatives based on what their positions are about corporate power. 
And that, you know, and that's the interesting thing too about the big tech issues in particular, they're actually bipartisan. I mean, you know, especially for us in Ohio, we know that Republican representatives have a lot of power and are very well represented, well represented at all levels of government. And, you know, in this space, we are seeing bipartisan support. So that's something that, you know, we're focused on too. 60% of Republicans, for example, in polling think that we should be doing something on big tech. Um, and so anyway, you know, I'm also trying to work with them on some of the political strategy there to help broaden the set of people who consider monopoly power issues of corporate consolidation to be one of their main issues that they're ultimately making voting decisions on. How did you find them or how did they find you? Um, That was more just happenstance in a way. Um, You know, some mutual friends who were connected to the organization were able to put me in touch with them. And I think, you know, they saw that I ran this campaign that was based on an idea of no corporate money in politics. And you know, for a lot of people, I think that can come off as like a slogan or, you know, it, it was like, it's a trend in politics or whatever. But really at the root of that is a recognition that our democracy has been bought and sold just like our economy to large corporations. And so, you know, the fact that I was really hitting that message home in our campaign, you know, they they make the link between these competition policy issues that they're also democracy issues. And so the more people we have that can spread that message, the better. And I think that's what ultimately led us to make that initial connection. And you also seem to have a real base or knowledge of the consumer and banking and and economic aspects. I mean, you have a lot of that experience in your career. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's where I was interested because, you know, yeah, like you said, I previously had worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a great federal agency that got a lot of good work done. But also having worked in the federal apparatus, I know the limitations of what an agency alone can accomplish. And so, you know, one of the main policy positions that economic liberties is fighting for and that I believe in because I've experienced it is we can only do so much reforming certain industries or companies, right? We have to actually address the root cause of the issue to broaden economic opportunity. So we don't find consumers who are as susceptible to getting in a payday loan because they actually are earning enough money to live and they aren't you know, signing up for 400% interest rate loans, for example. And the only way you can do that is by addressing some of these root cause, root issues in our economy. And that relates to corporate consolidation because we've been talking about big tech, but you see that same issue in every single market, more or less. And they also are then able to buy that influence of people in government and who's always losing, just us, really all of us. And so that's where I'm coming from with wanting to, you know, learn more about antitrust and, and also educate people more about antitrust issues. Because as I like to say, it's like, no matter what you think your issue is, you know, climate, I know that's something you're really focused on. We know that there's a corporate concentration issue behind yeah. that. And the more people who realize that, then the more that we'll be fighting for policies that are actually going to address the root cause. So in your testimony to the subcommittee, what was your objective? What did you want to have them get? Yeah, well, the the focus for that hearing was the gatekeeping power of these platforms. And what that refers to is the fact that, one, these companies are running critical 21st century infrastructure for getting work done. So, you know, we've already talked a little bit about Facebook and Google, like you can't really go on the internet and not have search at some point, right? And Google search is the dominant search platform in the world. 
Facebook for social networks, um, Amazon for the marketplace that they're running. I mean, especially now in the pandemic, we're seeing the huge power that Amazon has to drive commerce. You know, they like to say, oh, we're just like a small percentage of overall retail, but actually like in terms of the transactions that are happening and also how much they control small business owners who are trying to get their products to market, they have a lot more power than that. And so that gatekeeping power speaks to one, just like the dominance in certain platforms, but also their ability to combine that using data to drive out competition. So take, for example, Amazon is able to not only run the marketplace, but also use the data they're collecting about what other businesses are doing to then copy their products, push them down in search results and become the dominant player, even within a niche product. And so that type of gatekeeping power is what the subcommittee's report found to be unfair and that you know deserved further legislative action to address so that we can bring competition back to the digital market. And this first hearing was more or less reminding members, because there are a lot of new members to the subcommittee of what the report's findings were. And my specific goal, because each witness kind of fits a certain policy objective more or less, or has a policy position that they want to represent. My goal was to make the case for breakups, structural separations, the the idea that we can't just create regulations that are going to change how these businesses operate. We actually have to separate certain lines of business from from other parts in order to address that gatekeeping power, limit the amount of dominance they have over critical infrastructure like communications networks, the internet, social media, and to enable that type of competition to happen and ultimately for regulation to be effective. So how was the experience for you? Have you testified before like that? No, I never testified before. Pretty scary uh, to get ready for and in the moment. But you know, once it got started, I I felt pretty calm and and prepared. And you know, we did a lot of prep to get ready for it. And ultimately, I think the key takeaway for me is there it's a it's a learning session. It's an information gathering session. And you know, folks are trying to ask questions to better understand the issues in theory, you know, not everybody. And so you just get the ideas out there. And it really was a very cool opportunity to start to try to persuade these legislators to do what you know we believe to be the right thing. And um, yeah, and first time, hopefully not the last time, hopefully I'll be on the other side of the questions at some point soon. But yeah, it was a, it was a really cool experience. We'd like to share that testimony on our Facebook page. Can I get that from you? That would be great. Yeah. Let's come more close to town, to Columbus. And Mm -hmm. what are you doing locally now, Morgan? I know that you founded uh, one of the founders of Columbus Stand Up, Mm -hmm. and you are real active in getting voters. Yeah, um, people to the polls. What are you doing now with your group? Yeah, so we're still very active. And our latest thing is actually applying the rides to the polls initiative to get people vaccinated. Uh, you know, we we kind of did some strategizing as a team at the beginning of the year. And it's like, okay, well, what's the biggest need right now? And it's like, well, of course, it continues to be getting us out of this COVID nightmare. And right now, these vaccines are coming to market. So how can we support people in getting vaccinated? Because one of our big takeaways from the rides to the polls was how many people, it wasn't necessarily because of COVID that they needed a ride. They just generally are, um, you know, have limitations around transit and appreciated the support for a very important purpose, right? Um, you know, voting. And, and so we figured for vaccines too, a lot of our, a lot of our riders would need that same support. So we, we've launched that. We have some great partnerships that are coming up. We already are working with Wexner Medical Center. CODA is going to be another partner of ours to make recommendations and and our volunteers will be able to plug in um, to support folks who reach out to them. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're off to the races with that. 
bit of a lull right now because there are not as many vaccines available, but it's allowed us to, you know, get up to speed as, as more vaccines come out and the supply increases, I think we'll see even more demand. Do you have enough drivers to take care of the people that contact you? We have a good amount of drivers now, but actually that is a great ask. So if anyone is interested in volunteering, feels comfortable, uh, we would love to have more volunteer drivers. And you can just go to ColumbusStandUp.org slash vaccine, I believe, um, or just ColumbusStandUp.org and there's a a banner at the top, click on that and you can sign up to be a driver. We would always, always better to have more volunteers than not enough. And especially as we might see even more of a spike in riders. Yeah, we're, we're going to get more vaccines and, and that would be uh, great. It's a great um, service. Yeah. So what is the, the uh, website again, Morgan? The website that? is ColumbusStandUp.org. And there's a banner at the top. You click on that. And then that takes you to all our vaccine information, whether you want to sign up to request a ride or if you want to sign up to be a volunteer driver. Yeah. So just go to ColumbusStandUp.org, click on the banner, and then that'll take you to the vaccine page. But then other than that, we're um, we're also doing a lot of citizen forums. So trying to make this connection to policy issues and make it understandable, relatable for people. We've done a few with um, climate organizations in the city, which has been great about the city's climate action plan. We have one coming up about housing um, in partnership with um, COHAN, Central Ohio Housing Action Network. And they're gonna, they've brought in a, a panel of experts that we're gonna talk to about the eviction crisis that's ongoing. So uh, yeah, we're, we're staying busy and there's a lot, a lot of organizing too. And we also are hosting our community events and the ones this winter have focused on mental wellness and trying to give people coping mechanisms through this ongoing COVID struggle. Um, but, you know, even beyond that, just it's, it's a lot of stressors <laughs> and, you know, being able to come together, support one another and use meditation as a way to try to manage some of that stress. Um, we found, you know, people are excited and receptive to that in some of the community events we've done in different parts of the city. This is Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio, and today I'm talking with Morgan Harper, and she is involved with the American Economic Liberties Project and locally in Columbus, Columbus Stand Up. And she also ran for um, the third district, congressional district um, last year. I want to just ask you about a few things that are going on nationally, statewide and citywide. Mm -hmm. In D.C., there was um, the 15 now was part of the stimulus plan and then mm -hmm. out. what's going on? What's your take about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Yeah, I'm, I'm supportive of it. I. And, and also, I guess is how I would put it. I mean, the, the fight for $15 minimum wage in some ways is already behind because as we know, that's not enough to cover your basic needs, but it would be a lot better than where we're currently at, especially in our state with such a low minimum wage. Um, and we've seen other states like Florida in this past election cycle that was able to pass a ballot initiative to get to $15 an hour. Those are great, but they're a lot of work. And, you know, like having a federal floor could have a huge impact. You know, what, how that's fitting into the COVID relief and all of that uh, is, is a lot. We'll, we'll kind of see how that all turns out. But generally speaking, it's just it should be criminal how little folks are able to pay people to do work. And we really need to, to catch up with the times there. But I would just say I say and also because the minimum wage alone isn't really getting at some of the structural issues in the economy that allow people to get away with paying so little. Like that's really reflective of a power imbalance like we were talking earlier. And so I want to make sure that, you know, as we pursue some of these individual remedies like $15 an hour, people are also keeping top of mind the larger economic policy changes that have to happen that will make it easier to run your business and earn enough money to support yourself and your family. And also um, that, you know, you're able to demand more 
more wages in the economy from, you know, even larger corporations. So, you know, there's, there's a suite of things that I think need to happen at the federal level, but $15 an hour just seems like a no brainer. It should be one of them. Okay. So that's one of the few that need to be changed at the federal Mm -hmm. level. Yeah. What do you, what is your take about this for the people act? HR1, SR1, the act would eradicate gerrymandering, enact automatic voter registration and get money out of politics. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's a, got a good chance to pass? It seems like, you know, a, a decent chance. I mean, it's already moving forward in the House. And yeah, this could be another game changer and just uh, trying to get that corporate influence <laughs> out of Congress that's really hampered a lot of our legislative efforts. So, you know, it's, it does seem like it has really broad support, but we got we to gotta see what happens in the Senate, you know, and luckily we have better numbers there, but still some procedural impediments to getting things done. But yeah, I mean, definitely. Definitely supportive of the For the People Act. It could it could really be a game changer because, like I said, we've got a democracy problem and we have economic problems, and at the root of both of those are just the ability for large corporations to dominate both of those areas of our lives. And you know, this For the People Act kind of gets at the democracy one, which then hopefully would allow for our government to get back in the business of actually protecting us, standing up for us. Because right now we have little bits of that. You know, as more progressive people get elected, but to really have that at a broad scale you have to have some of the structural issues with our our government and politics addressed. And this is one way to do that. And do you think that it's pretty bipartisan? That I'm not as clear on. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate that that these things have even become partisan, right? It's like, you know, having government serve its role uh, of, of looking out for people, that shouldn't really be partisan. I mean, we're starting to see more fissures within the Republican Party about who's going to break with what that party has become, which is essentially just a money-making money vehicle for, for big business. And that's what they're about at the expense of any semblance of fiscal responsibility or our democracy or even the, safe and, the safety and health of people. That is what that party has become. And so, you know, how many how many of them will continue to break ranks and, and start to do what's right and really, you know, serve their roles as as those who are supposed to look out for the public remains to be seen. But I hope that I hope that we'll see that. What's your take on the filibuster? Uh, the filibuster needs to go. <laughs> I mean, the reason why I have to, you know, put caveats on all of my answers about all of these bills is that 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 tool is, is, you know, able to block anything. And so tool probably isn't even the right word, but yeah, it's a major problem. I think the case has been made for why it should go. And, uh, and yeah, I'm supportive of those efforts too, because it's, it's not okay. I mean, we've essentially blocked government from being able to really accomplish anything, which feeds into this larger narrative that government can't accomplish anything. And until we overcome that, we're all beholden to folks who are just looking to hijack government. So I guess we need to all contact our Congress people and senators and say, hey, we want the end of the filibuster. Yeah, but also we need to, I think, normalize mass movements around some of these procedural issues, right? Or or also around, you know, some of the larger policy issues. I think we've we've become now and kind of resuscitated this idea of we organize around climate and, you know, police brutality obviously has been like a huge organizing effort that's starting to pay big dividends, but we also need to just understand that you know we we've lost control of our whole of our whole government, and so we we need to have mass protests around 
that, you know, like get rid of this filibuster, get money out of politics, housing, all of it. Like we have to be organized on all of these fronts. And it's kind of daunting to think about, but that to me is the level of activation that's going to be necessary to change the political calculation of a lot of Republicans, you know, specifically that are in office who otherwise will not move on these things. They'll just stop it. Yeah. We need big change. Some good news. Some Ohio representatives at the state house are working on an anti-qualified immunity bill, which we've seen in Colorado, Connecticut, and New Mexico. And that would be a, a huge um, shift for the issues of police brutality and having mm-hmm. fighting justice. What's your take on that? That's great. And, you know, and I also have been working with some of the families who have been impacted by police violence who are moving forward with uh, with similar efforts. I think it's critical because um, it's really, this should be an issue for all of us as Ohioans that when folks do things that aren't aligned with our values or the expectations of their positions, that there should be some accountability there. Just like when you or I, if we don't do what we're supposed to do with our job, you know, like there's consequences for that. And so that we would carve out, you know, or, or it, not even we, actually, we, the people didn't do that, but that we've had through judicial precedent, this expectation created that there will be no accountability for one category of professional, uh, you know, police, specifically what I'm talking about, then that's not, that's not really fair. That's not consistent. And it doesn't bring our community or these families justice or accountability. And so my understanding of these efforts is about creating the ability to sue in state court when there has been some violation of your rights or the rights of a family member. And, um, and I support that. And I think it's, it's long overdue. Even the Supreme Court is reevaluating qualified immunity. They're seeing, they're seeing the big gap of justice. Yeah. So that's an, I think that's an issue for me that, and that I've heard from so many people that I have talked with on Grassroot Ohio is qualified immunity has to change. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had this on my platform during the campaign because it's, it's such a critical barrier. I mean, this, the, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because the judicial stuff, I think we've started to now pay more attention to it. Some of these appointments of people who are at different levels of the federal judiciary um, and, and even, you know, the, the state Supreme Court, it, it was an area that most people in government just didn't focus on, right? It's like, oh, it's the courts, whatever, who cares, you know, right. or it just feels like so academic, esoteric that it's hard to connect with what's going on. But, you know, while we were all just living our lives, they were recreating what our constitution means, right? And interpreting that in a way that does not, I think people are finding, doesn't align with what we actually believe in, or certainly not our understanding of the intent of the law. And so we've got to, we've got to change that through laws. And that's actually very similar to what's going on in the antitrust space. And antitrust, it's through judicial precedent that they have carved back the meaning of what some of these laws that were able to break up these big companies were about in the early 1900s. That's just judges that have been appointed during a lot of Republican administrations and have created new precedent and decided no, this is what the law means. And you can't get rid of a judge, a federal judge, you know, they have lifetime appointments. So the only way that we can make these changes is through legislators passing new laws, and then forcing the judges to comply with those new laws. Speaking about legislators, uh, 2022 elections are coming, are already in the works. Mm-hmm. Nina Turner is running for Congressional District 11. There are other districts up for vote, and we are going to be voting for a new senator, a new governor. Mm-hmm. Can we hope to see you on the campaign trail? <laughs> uh, well, you you can hope for whatever you want. <laughs> and uh, it's certainly, you know, something that I'm considering, but I haven't made any final calls yet. But I agree. I mean, it is 
exciting. Um, exciting to see that that CD11 race, kind of like a little bonus race, right? That we got that isn't on the typical election schedule, but a chance to get you know different policy ideas out there, engage an electorate, you know, up in Northeast Ohio that actually we saw wasn't didn't have great turnout in the in the Biden race, right? So this is a chance. That's what I hope for most is a competitive primary where we're really focused on engaging the electorate, not so much on picking winners and losers. Unfortunately, we've already seen, you know, some folks come out with endorsements early on before we're even talking about policy issues, which is a little unfortunate. Appreciate so much your work. Thank you. I appreciate it, Carolyn. I'll keep you posted. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back. Come down, come down.